Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, we're, we're basically starting right now uh, at, at the beginning of time, if, if you will, which is the beginning of the month of Nisan, Rosh Chodesh Nisan, is, uh, is sort of the, the, the beginning of all beginnings. And there's this fascinating kind of um, duality in the, in, the, in the Torah calendar. Which, um, which always fascinates me and, and makes a, a very fundamental point about how we're supposed to approach this world and our lives and um, just, just the, the, the fabric of, of existence itself. And I'm not, I'm not being hyperbolic. I'm, I'm, I'm actually talking very directly to the point. And that is um, the concept of um, the, the, the ongoing aspect of beginnings. And let me just give you um, a few illustrations of, of where we see this. So, famously, um, we've got this like, crazy dynamic where the Jewish New Year begins on the first day of the month of Tishrei. So, oddly, Tishrei is the seventh month of the year. So, we celebrate New Year's in the middle of the year. That's, you would admit, a curiosity. New Year should be the, the first day of the first month of the year, right? Or, let's put it another way. The, right now we're on Nisan, which is the month of miracles, where we leave Egypt, where it's just total clarity in, in, in Jewish law, in Jewish practice, the entire month of Nisan is a holiday. So, so what's, what's going on with that? It's the, it's the first month of the year, Okay. But it's not the beginning of the new year. So you have here now the beginning of the year, but it's not correlate, correlating with a new year. It's just on the, on the calendar of months, on the count of months, it's the first month of the year, but not a new year. So in other words, again, you, you, you have this, this sort of disconnect between, um, between what should be just uh, unambiguously a beginning... And it is a beginning without sort of officially being a beginning. So hopefully I'm not uh, confusing you. Um, but, but just to review it again, Nisan is the first month of the year, but it doesn't mark the beginning of a new year. And Rosh Hashanah, which takes place in the seventh month of the year, begins a new year, but it's the seventh month of the year. So hopefully it's clear in your head right now. So why? What's the explanation? So I'd like to offer the following explanation, which is that when you get to the middle of something, sometimes we get to the middle of our lives or we get to the middle of a project or whatever it is, we feel like we're in the middle of something. We feel like, you know something? Ah, it's over. Wherever I am, I am, and and that's it. You know, so people tend to give up. And so the Torah is telling us, God is telling us very, very strongly, it's still a beginning. You can begin again at any single moment in your entire life. Every moment is a beginning. And so God is making the hallmarks, the, the headquarters of beginnings, in the middles. In order to drive home this point. And in fact, and it gets deeper than this, in fact, the very first word of the Torah, Breshis, which is famously translated as in the beginning, I heard in the name of Rabbi Shlomo Karlovach, in the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, that Breshis means with beginnings. Meaning to say that the Torah and the world was created out of the fabrics of beginnings. With beginnings, God created the heaven and the earth. So, so every single moment, every single moment is a beginning. And to give you just my favorite illustration of this, if you draw a line... It looks like a solid substance. But I learned in geometry that a line is actually composed of an infinite series of discrete points. So, so I'll tell you what that says to me. Let's say you're on a diet. Or let's say you're trying to stop doing something that, that's very hard for you to stop doing. And then let's say you have a bit of a relapse in whatever area of life it is. And so, let's say I'm on a diet right now, and I'm heading toward the refrigerator. So part of me says, 
Listen, I'm already heading towards the refrigerator. It's over. I've already made my choice. I'm part of that solid line. I'm locked into this path that I'm on right now. You know? Okay, that's one way of looking at it. But if you actually understand what a line is, that it's an infinite series of discrete points, that the last point is not connected to the previous point, and this point is not connected to the next point. In other words, every single moment is a new beginning. Every single moment signals an opportunity for freedom. Well then, so what if I'm walking toward the refrigerator again? Doesn't matter. Because the step that I took is not connected to the next step that I have to take or not take. I'm free. I'm free. Because every moment is a beginning. That's the point. It's a very, it's a very real thing. So now... Now you see something, I want to get into the whole construction of the tabernacle, the Mishkan. It says that when we erected this, this, this edifice, which is a dwelling place for God, and of course God fills the entire universe and then exists dimensions beyond the universe. But nonetheless, God chose to have sort of a, a headquarters in this world, a dwelling place in this world an official sort of address. That's the Mishkan, that's the tabernacle. That's the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. So, so that was completed on the first day of the month of Nisan. And all the sages say that it was a microcosm of the world, but a microcosm of the perfected world. Now, now listen to this point. This is a, just kind of very far out, actually. So, so how important is this? How important is this? That the Mishkan, this tabernacle, was a microcosm of the perfected world. Not only that, but it was also a microcosm for the perfected human being. Okay, both of those paradigms are addressed in, in the tabernacle, in the Mishkan. And of course it makes sense, because when we, when we become enlightened, and we become perfected, their ripple effects on the entire world becomes perfected as well. So it makes sense that this paradigm of perfection should simultaneously reflect the perfected world and the perfected individual. Right? Now, there are a lot of levels to this, and I want to say some things, some new, some, some, some new ideas. So, so listen to the following. There's a foundation that everyone should know, because this will help you understand a lot of different mysterious passages in the Torah. And it's discussed in the Gomorrah, in Gomorrah, in Gomorrah Megillah, which is that if the first word of a verse, of a Pasuk, is Vayahi, that word, then it portends something negative coming. If the first word of a passage, of a verse, is Vahaya, it portends something positive coming. So that's a good key, and that will help you work with the various verses and understand them on a deeper level. So, so the, the completion of the Mishkan is discussed in Parshash Shmini. And it says, the rabbis teach that when, God, when we've completed the Mishkan, God was as happy as when the entire world was finished. He was as happy with the completion of the Mishkan as he was when he created the entire world. Again, that parallel between the Mishkan being a microcosm of the world. Okay, so, but you see it in a very real sense of how happy God was with the Mishkan. Okay, so if that's the case, isn't it odd that the finishing up of the Mishkan should be discussed with the word Vayahi, which portends something negative? That's that's up. That seems to go against what, what we've been saying. Actually, a new thought comes into my head to explain it. But first let me tell you what the Rishina Rebbe says. Because that's what I wanted to really tell you. So listen to this. I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Rishina Rebbe the following. Why does it say Vayahi? In other words, what was the sadness, what was the negativity associated with the completion of the Mishkan? Because we were supposed to be the finished Mishkan. 
It wasn't supposed to be a building. It was supposed to be us. That was the tragedy. That was the tragic element of it. In other words, what, it's a building? That's, that's not the ultimate celebration. The ultimate celebration is that it's us. And if you think about it, the Mishkan housed the Shekhinah. In other words, there was this cloud around it, and there was this, like when we brought the initial sacrifice, a fire came down from heaven and consumed it. It was this miraculous structure that was to be reproduced in the Beis HaMikdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. And the Ramban says, very compellingly, that the whole idea of the Mishkan and the Beis HaMikdash was that it should be an ongoing recreation of the Mount Sinai experience, of the, re- of the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. That that wonderment should be expressed on an every single day level, and that you could re-experience those levels of miracles and the receiving of the Torah, because remember, the tablets were housed in the Holy of Holies in the Mishkan, so that you could receive that Mount Sinai receiving of the Torah experience every time you went to the Mishkan. But the point is, is that the Mishkan was a structure, and you had this, the Shekhinah, the, the sort of this revealed aspect of this, you know, however you want to describe it, of godliness was, 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 present, was present there. Well, what's a human being? A human being is a structure that has a soul. What is a soul if it's not an aspect of the indwelling presence of God? So you see, the, the structure of the human being exactly mirrors the structure of the Mishkan. And when we get our act together, we are a Mishkan. And that's what it's supposed to be. That's what we're aiming for. Now, now listen to this. It's going to return back to that way, by the way. We are going to become authentic Mishkans. And, you know, I heard this in the name of the Sparna, which is, you see, there's, once the Mishkan was established, let's talk a little law right now. Once the Mishkan was established and the Beis HaMikdash was built, you have something called a, a Bamot, right? Or a Bama. That's the singular. What that is, is a mound of earth that you would offer a sacrifice on. Okay? So before you had the Mishkan, and before you had the Beis HaMikdash, you could make your own Bama, and you could offer a sacrifice. You could have one in your backyard, you could have one in a public place, wherever it was, and then you could offer sacrifices to God. And if you look at the, um, in Breshis, the stories of the, um, the accounts of the, uh, Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, in their travels, they're offering, they're making altars and they're offering sacrifices. So that was like the way, that, that was the way it was done. Once we had a Mishkan, or a Beis HaMikdash, those were outlawed. And if you wanted to bring an offering, you had to do it in the centralized, sanctified place. Okay? But in the end of days, when the human being becomes rectified, we are actually going to have on some level the halachic status of being a mishkan, which means that we'll be able to offer private offerings again, because our very presence, our rectified harmonic presence with halacha and the universe and God and everything will be such that wherever we decide to make an altar will be an appropriate place to do it. Because we ourselves are going to become Mishkans again. We'll have that status. So that's the direction it's going. But now I want to go deeper. There's a debate. I mentioned to you that the Mishkan was finished, and we read about it in Parshas Shmini. Shmini comes from the word Shmona, which means eight. So it says, on the eighth day, the Mishkan was inaugurated. Okay, so there's a debate among the rabbis. Where on the calendar is the eighth day? So, so it's on the, we, we, Moshe put it up, and then he took it down, and he put it up, and he took it down. This was over a period of seven days. And then on the final day, then that's, that's what it was. Okay? So, 
So some say that the some say that the the, the majority opinion is that the first of Nisan was the eighth day. The first of Nisan was the day that it was finished. Okay? Now, that's compelling because we said that the Mishkan is a microcosm of the universe, of the perfected universe. And there's an opinion in the Talmud that the world was actually created, or Adam and Eve were created on the first day of Nisan. Okay, so there's a debate. Was it the first day of Tishrei, which is called Rosh Hashanah, and that's how we celebrate it? Or was it, in fact, the first day of Nisan? And then there's a deeper kind of thought, which is that, no, they're both right. One was creation in thought, and one was creation in deed. So that starts to get, like, very, very deep. But nonetheless, there's a very strong opinion in the Gemara that it was finished that the world was created, the finishing of the world was on the first day of Nisan. So, so that first day was the eighth day. So, so you have the idea of the beginning and the end correlated. Because what is the whole idea of the eighth day? Like we talk about it a lot. The number eight in Torah stands for what we call Lamala Minateva, above the natural order. Because seven always represents nature, the revealed aspects of creation. Right? Remember we were talking about it that the very first verse of the Torah in Breshis has seven words. Right? So so, and the Baal Torah brings that down. So that's, that's a significant thing. Meaning that when God is talking about the creation of the world, that's the natural order. So even the very first verse of the Torah expresses itself in the language of sevens. The days of the week. The, 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 the notes on the musical scale. All these things are, are sevens. Okay? When we get to the number eight, we're talking about transcendence. Above the natural order, the miraculous order. So, so what I'm trying to express to you is the following. On the one hand, the Mishkan is finished on the first day of Nisan. On the other hand, that first day of Nisan is the eighth day of the building and the final dedication of the Mishkan itself. So, depending how you look at it, which paradigm you're going by, it's either the beginning of creation, or it's the eighth day, it's the end of creation. So, God begins with a perfect world, and then what happens is, we, we drive it back, we become partners with God toward the realization of that perfection. But that perfection is implanted from the outset. And then we become partners with God in terms of realizing the potential that was initially implanted in creation. Now, now how do we do that? How do we do that? So, there's a lot of parshas, like all dealing with the Mishkan. And why? Because the Mishkan is the primary Torah metaphor for constructing the world and for perfecting the world. That's why so much attention is being paid to it. Okay, that's a, there's a lot of ink, a lot of chapters are all about this, and the exact construction of it. The number of hooks, the number of planks. It's all, it's just a, a crazily disproportional amount of space is spent on these details. And the reason is because they're not details. God is telling us how to perfect and construct the world. All of our interactions with each other are all variants of building the Mishkan, of perfecting the world. That's what we're doing. That's all of our interactions. Now listen to this. We have Parsha's Truma that's talking about the, the, the measurements of the various, the sort of the blueprint of the Mishkan, and then the vessels, Tetzaveh, the garments that the kahana wear, the priests wear, all these things. 
And then we get to Parshas Vayakel. Parshas Vayakel is repeating a lot of these things from different angles, and, and, but it's, it contains this very key piece of information, which is the actual finishing up and the construction itself, saying that we, we did it. Now, now listen to this. It says that the wise men, this is, if you want to see this inside, it's uh, in Shmos and Exodus, chapter 36, and uh, verse 4. It says, now remember, and again, this is a very key thought if you understand that building the Mishkan means our completing creation and perfecting creation. It had to be built out of free will donations from the people. See, and that's, that's very important in terms of our own uh, service of God. That it has to come from your heart, because it talks about your heart all the time. It's got to come from your heart. At the same time, we're commanded, so it can't so come from your heart that you think you're the final authority. Because if you think you're the final authority, and you'll do it if you want to do it, and you're not going to do it if you don't want to do it, then essentially, whether you intend to or not, you're making yourself into God. And that's a form of idol worship. So, so, so there's this, this dialectic that a person has to understand as a created being that on the one hand, it's got to come from me. On the other hand, you absolutely don't have a choice in the matter. You've been commanded, and God's will is explicit. So, so there's that wrestling that goes back and forth. So the, the perfected individual, the most beautiful service is someone who wants to do it, but at the same time understands that they've been commanded to do it. And that's the, what we call the two wings of the dove. Remember, uh, a bird has to have two wings to fly. And one wing is Ava, it's love. The other wing is Yira, which means this recognition of the awesomeness of God. And if you have both correlated, then you've got the wings of the dove. Then you can fly. Then you're like, then you're, then you're the created spiritual being that, that, that God longs for. So, so they make a collection. Everyone's got to bring all the things and they've got to donate all the cash, basically. But, you know, different things to make the Mishkan out of. So there's a big collection that takes place. And they call this the most successful fundraising drive in the history of the Jewish people, right? Because at a certain point, and here's where it says, it says, all the wise men came, like I guess they were the leaders of collecting and everything like that, and they say to Moshe, Moshe, people are giving too much. We've got too much. And so, so then, a, little, a couple of lines later it says, we had enough. So wait a second. <laughs> and then it says, and extra. So like, wait, a lot of riddles here. It begins by saying, we had more than enough. Then it says, we had enough. And then it says we had extra. <laughs> so let's take this a step at a time. First it says we had more than enough. Then just almost directly after, it says we had enough. So let me ask you a question. What is the definition of enough? So, I'll tell you the answer. According to this, the answer to enough is more than enough. Because it says we had more than enough, and then it says we had enough. So the definition of enough is more than enough. So Moshe says, stop giving. And then it says, and we had extra. Okay, so we're going to get to the extra part in a, in a moment. But, but now let's get back to this idea. What does it mean that enough is more than enough? What does it mean that enough, the definition of enough, is more than enough? Well, let's put this back into the language that we've been discussing it. What does it mean to build the Mishkan? To build the Mishkan means to perfect the world, to perfect ourselves. What is enough then? Enough is more than enough. Meaning, how much do you have to give? What is enough in terms of your efforts? What is enough? More than enough. Meaning, a person has to give, the definition of enough is 110%. That's the definition of enough, is more than enough. A person has to actually go beyond their capacity 
for that to be called enough. Alright, so that sounds like very strong, like, oh my God, what are you doing to me, <laughs> you know? But now listen to, listen to the next part, okay? The Ramban says, how much more did we have left over? Remember it says that there was extra? He says, just the littlest amount extra. <laughs> so, remember, let's set the scene again. The wise men are like running around saying, we have too much, we have too much, we have too much. It sounds like there's, oh my God, like, there's a lot, there's tons of stuff going in, way more than we need. And yet, how much actually was coming in that was over the, the required amount? The tiniest bit more. Okay, so now let's put all these thoughts together. You see what it is? And everyone's experiences in their own life, in so many different areas of their life. You're working on something, let's say you're working on a project, or you're dealing with a difficult person, or you're dealing with a non-difficult person, whatever it is, and you hear a voice in your head that says, done, done, finished, enough, no, <laughs> did my share, <laughs> you okay, just finished. Everyone knows that feeling. You just click <laughs> off. <laughs> All right. So now if you do a little bit more than that, if you do a little bit more than that, after you shut down and everyone's got a different point in their, in their life where they shut down, if you do a little bit more than that, you create so much light by breaking your Yetzirah, by overcoming your... Your, your negative inclination, at that moment, if you just do a little bit more, you create so much light that the wise men are running around saying, we have too much, we have too much, we have too much, and that's called enough. So in other words, what's required of us in order to build the Mishkan, to perfect the world, to have the, the amount of um, capital, net asset, effort, of humanity kicking in, that everyone should do as much as they can, whatever their level is, and just take one step beyond that. Take one step beyond that, and there's so much outpouring of light that's going to result in that, that it's literally going to be the finishing up of the Mishkan, the perfection of the world, the perfection of the individual. Now, now I want, to, I want to talk more about what happened on this day, on the first day of Nisan. You see, because the first day of Nisan is the first of the months, and it's the, actually the first mitzvah that the Jewish people got when we were leaving Egypt. And, and so you might think, like, it sounds like very kind of unspectacular. The first mitzvah that we get is God says, make a calendar. Like, you know, it's kind of like saying, you know, I want you to have like one of those um, in, in boxes and out boxes on your desk. You know what I mean? Put your pencils in the jar over there. You know, it sounds like very sort of like very unspectacular. Make a calendar. When you know, see, put that on the cork board behind your desk, you know. But, but really what it's talking about is the mastery of time itself and the sanctification of time itself. Okay. That's what it is, because a slave isn't in charge of their own time, but a free person is. And so, in order to be really free, means to be able to harness this most essential ingredient of reality. And to be able to uplift it and master it. So important is this mitzvah. Remember, it's the first mitzvah that we get when we leave Egypt. It's the first mitzvah that we get as the Jewish people. That the very first Rashi in the entire Torah, the, ver- um, the word Breshis, asks the following question, why doesn't the entire Torah begin with this mitzvah? I mean, it's huge, this mitzvah. Why doesn't the whole Torah begin with this mitzvah? So, so, so the truth is, is that in the deep discussions of the comparisons between the word Breshis 
And this mitzvah of sanctifying time, we find out that it's, they're kind of the same idea. They really are the same idea. And Breshis, and by the way, just so you know where I'm going, I'm about to discuss with you a mitzvah, a blessing that we only say once a year, on the flowers of a fruit tree. So that's where we're heading right now, okay? Because as of yesterday, that's the sort of the opening bell of when you're able to say this once a year blessing over the flowers on a fruit tree. You, can only, you only get to say it once during the year. And, and I want to connect it with the beginning of Nisan and what our lives are all about in a moment, okay? So, so, so Breshis, Breshis means, we said, in the beginning, or better, with beginnings, okay? Now again, this is such an important Torah, so simple but so, so central. I heard it from Rabbi Tatz. Breshis, the very fact that the Torah begins with this word, with beginnings, the word beginnings implies that there's an end. Right? Because beginnings means there's an end. So that, that's huge. That's huge. That's huge. Because what that's communicating from the very, remember the Torah is the blueprint of the, of the world. The very first word of the Torah is telling us that we're part of a process. That this is just right now, that what we're experiencing right now is just the beginning of a process. That's very, you can't understand your life, you can't understand the world, unless you understand this point. And God is telling us, like literally the first word of the first line of the Torah, God is communicating this point to tell you how absolutely central understanding this is. Beginnings means there's an end. This is a process. Okay. So fine. So now, the first day of the month of Nisan, which is again the beginning of time, it's the first day of the first month, and there's an opinion again in the Talmud that the world was created on the first day of the month of Nisan. That's the time where you say this once a year blessing, beginning then, on the flower of of a fruit tree. Okay? So, so, I, I want to read you the blessing. It says, if you've got an art scroll prayer book, it's on page 228. And, um, maybe there are different editions of it, but, but, uh, that's where you'll find it. It's blessings of praise and gratitude, Blessings over phenomena and events. It's actually um, just a few blessings underneath the prayer for thunder, if, uh, <laughs> if you want to find that. So, there are all sorts of great blessings, by the way. There's a blessing that you can say on rainbows, and a blessing that you can say on earthquakes, and a blessing that you can say on unbelievably beautiful people, trees, or fields. You know? On strange-looking people or animals. There's, there's all sorts of amazing... I'm seeing a king. I'm seeing an outstanding Torah scholar. All, all sorts of blessings that we can say. And one of them is upon seeing fruit trees in bloom during the spring. Okay? So it says, Baruch atah Hashem elokeinu melcholam shelo chisar ba'olamo davar. So, chisar... So let me translate that first part of it. Blessed are you, Hashem, our King, our God, King of the Universe, for nothing is lacking in His universe. Chisar means something lacking. Like sometimes we, if we talk about someone who has negative uh, personality traits, we call those chisronos. It's the same word, chisar, to something that's missing. Nothing is missing, and we're going to go back to that in a moment. Nothing is missing from His universe, and He created in it good creatures and good trees, to cause mankind pleasure with them. So in other words, the, the blessing, if you think about it, could have ended, he created in it good, good creatures and good trees. But then the rabbis are very explicit in telling you what God's intention was. To cause mankind pleasure with them. God wants to make you happy. God wants to give you beautiful things. 
God wants you to experience pleasure. That's the point. You're being told that outright. You're not deriving that. You're being told that. That's why God is making all this stuff. You know, today we have so much processed food. Like, if you like candy bars, I love Baby Ruth bars, right? So it's like, uh uh-uh, yum, so good, right? But back in the day, they didn't, I don't think they had, like, Baby Ruth bars. Maybe they had something like that. But, like, the primary sort of, like, delicacy and candy and everything like that were, like, fruits. All these different fruits. And it's like, if you look in the, the, um, Mashalim and Midrashim and, and, and in Shir Shirim and everything like that, it's always talking about the, the king's orchards and things like that. Like, they had, they had unbelievable trees and all different trees. And I don't know if any of you have ever experienced this. Have you ever had, like, a big peach that's, like, very ripe and you bite into it and, like, the, it like drips down your chin and your neck, you know? Do you know that experience? That's because God wants to make you happy. So that was, like, just a, just a beautiful expression of how much God just wants you to experience pleasure is fruit. Okay. So now, I've got a big question. Here's my question. It says, it says nothing is missing. God made this world where nothing is missing. Okay? Now, what are you supposed to make the blessing on? So, so it's, it's like, it's a, it's a flower on a tree that's going to produce fruit. Okay. Well, here's something that's missing. The fruit! <laughs> Where's the fruit? Isn't the fruit the entire point? <laughs> There's no fruit! And I'm talking about how everything is there and all the pleasure and everything like that. And the fruit's not there. But what's the point? And this is where it gets deep, and this is so important. It's a done deal at that point. It's part of a process. You're in the process. You're in the flow. It's going to happen. Mashiach is going to happen. The perfection of the world is going to happen. The world is being led toward a certain point. That's what's going on. What do you think all this Facebook technology, all this Science that's like raining down. What do you think is happening right now? All the world economies are being tied together. Air flight, telephones, computers, everything is being linked into one thing. Let's get back to Facebook. 800 million people are now friends. What an unbelievable language, right? I mean, this unification of the world is being revealed. The world was always one. What did we say? That the the Mishkan simultaneously, it's the first day, because it's the first day of the month of Nisan, but it happened on the eighth day. Perfection was inlaid at the beginning, and what we're doing right now is realizing the oneness that's always been there, and achieving it through our actions, the revelation of God's oneness. That's what's going on right now. And so when you look at a flower, and you make the blessing that nothing is missing, you're recognizing the fact that you're participating in this process. That you're part of a process that's unfolding. And that the promise, on some level, is as good as the thing itself. And that's very deep. I heard from Rabbi David Hertzberg, I was a kid when I heard this, but I never forgot it. You know when the Jewish day begins? At night. When there are three stars in the sky. You know what that means? He said, when there are three stars in the sky, the promise of daytime, the promise of light, is counted the same as light. Beautiful. For us, the promise of something is counted as that thing. So we can look at a flower which doesn't even have a piece of fruit on it yet, but because it's entered into that stage of development, we can say, God, thank nothing is missing. Because God keeps his word. God keeps his word. God keeps his promises. 
I got to tell you something. My dad, when I grew up, was almost compulsive in this, in this particular way. He would say to us over and over again, have I ever given you my word and not kept it? My entire life I heard him say that to me. Have I ever given you my word and not kept it? And you know, it hit me so many years later, so many years later, that, oh my goodness, he was giving me such faith in God. If my father keeps his word, a zillion times over, how much does God keep his word? And, uh, and I want to say something more. So, so I grew up on 79th Street and Broadway in Manhattan. A lot of concrete. Mostly concrete. I didn't have any nature experiences growing up. So now I have like a little backyard. It's like, you know, a little larger than a postage stamp, you know. But I've got two fruit trees. Actually, maybe, maybe some more. Um, I planted an avocado, well, I didn't, but there are two avocado trees. Avocado trees are unbelievable, by the way. They, they grow so quickly. It just You get an avocado. You know how to make an avocado tree? You, just, you literally can make an avocado tree, like, in a very short period of time. You just take the pit, let it sprout, plant it, and there's a tree in no time. It's crazy. And you know, in New York, sometimes one avocado sells for like $4. You can actually have an avocado tree. All right, that is fine. So, but I'm excited because our avocado trees after several years are just beginning to flower. So this is big news in our house. So anyway, but these lemon trees, I monitor them because they fascinate me. And so I can tell you the following thing related to what we've been discussing up until now, which is, first it looks like a stick. Bless you. First, it looks like a stick, okay? There's, uh, there, there's nothing on it. The branch, looks, there's no activity. By the way, do you know how miraculous... You see, God plays a trick on us. God plays a trick on us. Let me tell you what the trick is. He does things really slowly. So, because he does things so slowly, we think that he's not doing anything. <laughs> think about it. If you... Right, let's say you're taking some notes at your desk or whatever it is with a pencil, right? You're writing down something and then you put the pencil on your desk and then you walk, you know, you go to the bathroom, you go to the kitchen, you come back to your desk and hanging off your pencil is a grapefruit. You'd go, oh my, this is the greatest miracle ever. A grapefruit came from my pencil. But what happens on a tree? What's a pencil? A pencil is a piece of wood. What's a tree? A tree is a piece of wood. Does it make any sense whatsoever that a grapefruit should come out of a tree? But it happens so slowly. And what do you do? It, these avocado trees are really big. They're much bigger than I am. I'm over six feet. They're much bigger than I am. They came from a pit. A little pit. That doesn't look like a tree at all. And then you plant it, and it disintegrates. So you think, for sure, it's dead. By the way, the Chachamim, the sages, were like very into that idea. And in fact, one of their proofs, if you will, for resurrection of the dead comes from this. That you can take a seed, plant it in the ground, it decomposes, and then life springs from it. That is, if you think about it, in the natural world, perhaps the most compelling argument for resurrection of the dead that there is. And of course, resurrection of the dead is an absolute tenet of Torah Judaism. There's going to be mass resurrection of the dead. And that's normal. We, we haven't seen it yet, but it's normal. If, if you think about it, it's all been set up in the natural world to happen. Um, but what I'm trying to tell you is, is that Something completely decays, and you think, done, it's over. It decayed. It's fallen apart. It's buried. It's underground. Nothing is happening with that thing. All of a sudden, life springs forth, and then from that wood, fruit. You know, you, sometimes you see kids, and they look just like their parents, right? Can I ask you something? 
Does an orange look anything like a tree? Does it look anything? Oh yeah, I'm going to bite this tree because it's so juicy and delicious. Oh no, 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 I'm not an idiot. First I'll peel the bark and then I'll bite the tree. And good luck. There's, there's no... The, the, the fruit does not look like the tree at all. The child does not look like the parent at all. There's no correlation. But because God does it in such utter slow motion, we go, of course, it's a fruit tree. What do you think? Idiot. A fruit tree makes fruit. Idiot. <laughs> because it happens slowly. So we think that it's normal. Oh, it's, it's slow. Okay, then it's not miraculous. You know, every year, by the way, there's this great correlation on the calendar. We're going to talk about correlations in a bit on the calendar, something special. Which is that Tubishvat, which is the New Year of Trees, happens always when we read about the splitting of the Red Sea. The splitting of the Red Sea is the ultimate miracle. And it, it, it happens at the same time as Tubishvat, which seems to be the opposite of a miracle. It's a total expression of nature. Trees. Trees make fruit. That's what it is. So this correlation is opening up our eyes to the the miraculousness of that process. But anyway, let me get back to the point. The idea that we're part of this unfolding process, that that's time, that that's creation itself, and it's heading towards something. So, I look at the branch. The branch is just a piece of wood. Nothing is happening with this branch. Then all of a sudden, a flower starts to come. And it's like, wow, it's a flower. This is awesome. Then the flower opens Wow, that's awesome, because I couldn't tell how beautiful this flower was until it opened. Now it's open, and I can see all the colors inside and everything like that. Then there's a stem in the middle. forgot what it's called. There's a stem in the middle of it. It's a little thicker, just a little bit more pronounced than the other hairs that are sort of coming out of the flower. Sorry, I don't know the exact terms. And then I look at that, and I watch that. And then one day... This is a lemon tree. One day, on the tip of that central little stem, there's a little green dot. It wasn't there the day before. And then all of a sudden it's there. And that's the fruit. Or the fetus, if you will. Because we're talking about birth also now. It wasn't there yesterday. But there it is today. I've watched this with my own eyes. And then that develops and it grows and it grows and it grows and it becomes full. And there's the fruit. You know, all of us have needs. Husbands, wives, kids, money, healing, Mashiach. We all have needs. And just because it's not here today doesn't mean it's not going to be here tomorrow. You know? And, uh, and that's the process. And look at this beautiful thing that we bless God. We say, God, nothing is missing. Nothing is missing because there's this recognition that even though the fruit isn't there, the fruit is coming. The fruit is coming. And that the promise of something on some level is that thing itself. We count it the same. Because God keeps his word. So let me just finish with this one thought which is that the cycle of the Torah Parshas, what we read in the Torah during the year, doesn't really correlate with the calendar itself. So, just to clarify the point, when we read about leaving Egypt, that usually happens around January and February. That's when we read the portions about leaving Egypt. But Pesach, Passover, which is the historical anniversary of leaving Egypt, is several months away. That's in the springtime. So do you hear how there's a disconnect of what we're reading in the Torah and the historical calendar itself, when the event actually took place? And, and that's the same thing with Shavuos receiving the Torah. We're, we're not reading about that in the normal reading in the Torah, when the, when the calendar historical event actually happened, and also with Sukkot. So there's this disconnect 
between what we're reading in the Torah at any time during the year and actually when the event actually happened on the historical calendar. Everyone hears that? Okay. There's an exception. The exception is when we, make the, when we build the Mishkan. Because right now we're reading about completing the Mishkan and right now is, is the beginning of Nisan when the Mishkan actually was made on the calendar. So this, there's this unbelievable confluence, correlation, between what's going on in the Torah and what's going on historically and in terms of just the events as they transpired historically. There's this confluence, which means that there's this macro level of harmonizing that's going on with the discussion of these topics because that's what's going to happen. We're going to get it together on a personal level, which is going to correlate with getting it together on the world level, which is going to correlate with the revelation of the perfection that was implanted in creation from the actual outset. All of these things are going to come together. And not only that, but this is the negative side of it right now. When we read, when we celebrate, God, when we should really openly celebrate Tisha B'Av, which is the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, we read the book Eicha, that's the book of Lamentations. And the Parsha that we always read on the Shabbos before Tisha B'Av is Parsha's Devarim, which in the very beginning, opening passages of Devarim, has the word Eicha in it, meaning Lamentations. So again, when it comes to the building of the Beis HaMikdash and the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, the Torah portion that we're reading correlates with the historical event. And it's not true for any of the holidays, but it is true for the tabernacle. Because, because that, is, that is the ultimate place that we're driving toward. To turn ourselves into tabernacles, to turn the entire world into a mishka, mishkan, a revealed dwelling place for God. And so that's why that's really the central, con- that's why that's the, the central concept and why the Torah is spending so much time discussing it. And just for us to know in our own lives that everything that you do, if you can just, when that, when that button goes off in your head, off, done, finished, right? I've given enough, I've given enough. If you just do a little bit extra, a little bit extra to, to break your negative inclination, doesn't have to be a lot more, just a little bit more, so much light comes, so much light. And that, when we get it together on a mass level, will absolutely be the fixing of the entire world. Let it be soon, let it be soon. Yeah.